0: Hey there, this is Brian Zond. We'll get to the sermon in just a moment, but I want to let you know I have a new book out, The Unvarnished Jesus, A Lenten Journey. It is a devotional for the season of Lent. It takes the reader from Ash Wednesday, which is February 26th this year, all the way right up to Easter Sunday. So it's a great way to journey with Jesus through Lent Learn how to see Jesus beyond the varnish of the assumptions that we often make. Uh, You can get this book on Amazon, so go ahead and order it now so you'll be ready for two or three pages per day of Lenten devotions. The Unvarnished Jesus, available now at Amazon.com. Money. That's what we're talking about. We're looking at what the Bible has to say about money. Uh, The Bible has so much to say about money. Uh, We've looked at, well, we started with Moses. What does Moses have to say about money? A lot. Then we looked at the prophets last Sunday. What do the prophets have to say about money? Next Sunday, we'll look at what the apostles have to say about money. But this Sunday, Jesus and money. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says this. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Uh, Jesus has, not surprisingly, a lot to say about money. If you go through the Gospels where Jesus is teaching, speaking, giving parables, it's safe to say that Jesus talks about money on every page. Jesus has a lot to say about money. We'll look at some of it. We don't have time to look at nearly all of it, but we'll look at some of it. But this right here in the Sermon on the Mount is an important summation of what Jesus has to say about money. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is the Aramaic word for money, but really we use it as money that has risen to the level of idolatry. Money as a God. Jesus says you cannot serve the living God if you also are trying to serve money as a God. You're going to, somebody's going to lose out, either God or mammon, and you're going to have to make a choice. Now, we live in a world that as it is, uh, we cannot escape from participating in the money system. I mean, that's, a, that's an impossibility. You know, you just, it's, you can't. We, we engage in money all the time. We have to. There's no way around it. So we can't escape participation in the money system. But what we can escape, what we're called to escape, what we seek to escape is the idolatry of treating money as a god. Everybody, do you understand that that is the predominant idol in our society? The economy, spoken of in reverent and hushed tones, the economy. Oh, the economy, But, but the economy. I mean, you can win every argument. Yeah, but the economy, the holy one, the exalted one. See, that's what we're to escape we have to participate in the money system but we don't have to participate in the idolatry of making a god out of money and by the way i don't think i don't think it's a decision you can just like make once okay okay i make that decision all right i'm, I'm not going to uh, treat m- money as a god you'll have to make that decision probably every day i think we just have to constantly uh, be very focused on Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, seeking deliberately to follow Him if we're going to escape the tentacles of mammon. So what did Jesus do between His baptism and His crucifixion? Between being baptized by John in the River Jordan, this begins His ministry, and the culmination of His ministry on Good Friday at the cross. What does Jesus do in between that time? Because you'll hear people say, well, Jesus just, you know, he came to die. Well, no. Uh, Dying on the cross to save us from death was the culmination of his whole ministry. But what he does between baptism and crucifixion is important. And you can't skip over it. And what does Jesus do? Jesus announces and enacts the kingdom of God. He's telling everybody, hey, it's right here. A new government, a new way of living, a new ordering of human society that comes not from the earth, but it comes from the heavens. It comes from my Father. There is a new, It's good news. I have good news. There's a new kingdom. There's a new way of being human. And I'm announcing it. And now I am, I am acting it out in healing people and setting people free from demon power. In, the, in Jesus' practice of radical hospitality in accepting all kinds of outcasts to His table. Between baptism and crucifixion, Jesus announces over and over and enacts over and over this new thing called the kingdom of God. And then he calls people into it. He calls disciples of this kingdom to follow him. That's our gospel reading this week. We just heard it. It's Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee and calling Peter, James, John, and Andrew to be his first four disciples. Now... The kingdom of God that Jesus is announcing and acting and inviting people into has an alternative economy. It is not the fear and greed-based economy of Pharaoh, of Caesar, of Herod, of Chase Manhattan and Wall Street. that is just so dominant, it's all, all driven. I mean, the stock market's driven by two forces. Fear and greed, fear and greed, fear and greed. I'm not saying you can't participate in it. I do. But just understand that's what's driving it. And that in some way we are called to rise above that and belong in an economy that comes not from Pharaoh and all the rest, the Bible critiques, but we're called to participate in the kingdom of God, which has an altered alternative economy, not driven by fear and greed, but based on trust and generosity trust, we're to trust God, and we're to be generous. We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that involves what we do with our money. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that involves what we do with our money. And so we're to seek first God's kingdom. That involves our money. We're to seek first His justice. That's how we treat other people. That involves our money. Another thing that Jesus makes pointedly clear in His preaching and teaching is, is that economic self interest is the single greatest hindrance to full participation in the kingdom of God now, if I could, I would actually just go sit on the front row and and listen to myself preach and cringe because i 'm preaching to myself all right i 'm I'm not, I'm not up here saying you all i 'm saying we all are being very challenged by jesus, but it makes it's just it 's clear that the single greatest there, there are other Challenges, But the single greatest challenge or obstacle to full participation in the kingdom of God that Jesus announces is economic self-interest. Jesus says it over and over in all kinds of different ways, but maybe none more memorable than what he says in Matthew 19. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which that's kind of funny. You think, yeah, I think that would be hard, a camel to go through, to, to thread a needle with a camel, all right? You see those camels on, on, on uh, Christmas Eve and try to think about Tyrese trying to get one to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Dang! And, of course, you know, immediately we get nervous and we think, Define rich. <laughs> okay, because I, I, I don't... It's easier for a camel to go through the eye that's, that, That'll make you laugh because that's a funny image. Then for a rich man, Jesus goes on and says it's possible though because of God. But he's making the point that it's not easy. It's difficult. And he's not talking about going to heaven when you die. He's talking about participating in the life of the coming age that Jesus is inaugurating with his life, death, burial, resurrection, and all that he does. Yet, and I've gone down this road for a few moments, yet don't make the mistake of assuming that Jesus was against wealth and abundance. It's easy to make that mistake. Oh, yeah, money, Jesus hates it. Wealth, Ah. Abundance? Jesus is totally against that. No. A surprising, and I almost want to use the word whimsical abundance, just kind of swirl everywhere Jesus goes. Everywhere Jesus goes is just. Jesus is challenging us to depart from wealth as an idol, to not put our trust in money, but to trust God. He makes it clear that economic self-interest, if we prioritize that, it makes it almost impossible for us to participate in the kingdom of God. He makes that very clear. On the other hand, everywhere he goes, there's this ridiculous abundance. How does he start his miracle ministry? At Cana of Galilee. When people have already, it says, well drunk. They're running out of wine, but it isn't like they hadn't had any wine. They've had wine. They've had a lot of wine. But they you know it's starting to run out people still want some more and so does Jesus give them one more glass no Jesus turns 180 gallons of water into wine it's absurd it's ridiculous it's that's not a little that's not that's not economical that's not frugal that's a it's abundance so apparently Jesus is not against abundance or you know they're hanging out with Jesus. He's teaching them. He's teaching them. He's teaching them. And uh, Jesus says to his disciples, you know, we probably ought to feed them. They've been here for a couple of days. We ought to feed them. And, you know, one of them gets out their calculators. Lord, you know, it's going to cost thousands and tens of thousands of dollars to do this. Well, Jesus, what would we got? We got, we got? We got five little loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus that'll work. Tell everybody to get ready for lunch, sit down. Let's thank the Lord. And you know what happened? With five loaves and two fish, Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And there's always more women and children in church than men, for shame. There's 10,000 plus people, and Jesus feeds them. Now, see, if you, if you have, okay, we've got 10,000 people, and we've got, we got five loaves... All right, that's, that's one loaf for every 2,000 people, and oh my goodness, this is, now people aren't going to get very much, because there's a lack, but there wasn't a lack. Somehow, five loaves and two fish plus Jesus became everybody getting second and thirds and 12 baskets left over. It's, it's an absurd, whimsical, ridiculous abundance. He does it again with feeding the 4,000, same thing. Jesus had to pay his taxes. Peter had to pay his taxes. Temple tax. And Jesus says to the people well, just just I don't know, just go down and go down to the sea, throw in a throw out a line, catch a fish. First fish you catch, look in his mouth. It'll be a surprise. What does he find? He finds a coin that was the exact amount to pay the tax the temple tax for two people. When we do our Holy Land pilgrimage we always have a lunch at a fish restaurant on the Sea of Galilee we serve St. Peter's fish and uh, the proprietor there occasionally will take a shekel and stick it in the mouth of one of those fish so somebody will find Oh, I love that I think that's just I like that there's a whimsical abundance that swirls around Jesus Jesus apparently is not opposed to wealth and abundance you'll hear I mean, I have my own stories, right? Perry and I have our own stories. I, I've told them. I won't tell them again just other than to mention them. But, you know, I mean, we were poor. $90 a week we were living on in the early 80s. You, you can't do that. That's five loaves and two fish sort of thing. And yet Jesus provided. I mean, there was time that the two dollars bills floated up in the dishwater. It really happened. There was a time when the lights were about to be turned off and I'm just, I don't know what to do. It's a Sunday. I'm just sitting there. They're going to turn off Monday. I'm sitting on my front porch swing and somebody I don't even know drives up and carries me a grocery sack full of money. That's, that's, that's Jesus. That's abundance. That's Jesus does that sort of thing. Now there are people who will say that Jesus hung out with the poor. That's true. Jesus did. It's also true that Jesus hung out with the rich. He did both. Jesus hung out with the poor. It's true. He did. Sometimes you'll hear people say that as if it was exclusive. And Jesus gave a cold shoulder to the rich. It's not true. Jesus hung out with the poor. It's true. But Jesus also hung out with the rich. And sometimes that did and does offend people. It offended people in Jericho when he went and hung out with... Zacchaeus but you know Zacchaeus he was a tax collector and, and then he repents and and all that but it wasn't always like that as far as we can tell Jesus closest friends other than his disciples and th- these weren't disciples these were friends his closest friends are Lazarus Martha and Mary siblings brother and two sisters Lazarus Martha and Mary and they were rich when Jesus and his disciples would come to Jerusalem, Jesus would stay at their estate. Put it that way. They lived in Bethany, just two miles away. And they, could, they, could, they had a house that could handle 13 men. On the Wednesday before Jesus' crucifixion, there was a dinner at that house. And at one point during the dinner, Mary... Brings out a jar of perfume. I think it's a jar of perfume. It's a jar of perfume. It's a jar of perfume. That we are told could be sold, was worth 300 denarii. Dang. That doesn't mean much. What is that, like $300? No. It's like, conservatively, conservatively, it's like $25,000 in our economy. (coughs) I mean... If you have a jar of perfume that is worth $25,000, you are a rich person. You are, I mean, there's no getting around that. And pretend you haven't heard this story. I know you've heard this story, pretend you've never heard this story. So they're at dinner, these are rich people. Mary slips out, comes back, she's got this jar. Got perfume in it, it's worth $25,000. She takes all of it, all of it, not not a little bit, all of it, and pours it all on Jesus' head, all of it. $25,000 of perfume in one anointing. Well, you say hallelujah. That isn't what anybody else said. Everybody else at the table said, wait a minute, what's going on here? That's... Chanel Purnard number 50. <laughs> that's worth 25 grand. Why waste it like that? That could have been sold, and that could... How many poor people could you feed with it? How much good could that do for people? How many people's back rent could that pay? And if you didn't know the story, you would say, that's exactly right, and Jesus is about to tell that lady off. Except he doesn't. He defends her and he says, "Hey, hey, hey, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. Out of the abundance of the heart, I mean, uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." And Jesus had captured Mary's heart, and she reaches into her treasure and she anoints him with twenty-five thousand dollars worth of pure nard. And Jesus said, Jesus didn't call it wrong. Jesus didn't condemn it. He says, the poor you have with you always. You don't have me with you always. She's done a beautiful thing. And I'll tell you what, wherever the gospel is preached around the whole world, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. And so it is. So it's hard to... See, the moment you think you got Jesus figured out, look out. He'll surprise you. I'll tell you this much. You cannot use Jesus... To champion class warfare. Don't go go down that road. Especially if it's in some way to accuse others. Jesus doesn't play that game. So Jesus hangs out with the poor, but he also hangs out with the rich. He challenges the rich. He says, it's going to be easier for a a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for you people to participate fully in the kingdom of heaven. And yet, when someone anoints him with $25,000 worth of perfume, he says, that's a beautiful thing. He doesn't condemn it. It's very interesting. Well, the real interesting thing about Jesus and money is that he really doesn't say anything other than what Moses has already said. He is calling his disciples to take seriously what Moses has said and to find a way to live into God's alternative economy. And we see this especially in the famous story of Jesus and the rich young ruler which shows up in all three synoptic gospels in Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 18. There's this young man, he's rich. He's, he has some political position or maybe a royal position. He's just called a ruler. Not sure what that is, but he has power. But he's also extremely rich, not just rich, extremely rich. He's young, he's powerful, and he's extremely rich. And he comes to Jesus and he said, all right, what what do I need to do? Good teacher, what good thing do I need to do? What do I need to do to fully participate in the kingdom of this coming age? What do do I got to do? Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. The rich man says, which ones? And what Jesus does is he rattles off the six justice commands of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, the first four have to do with ordering right worship of God. The remaining six have to do with how we treat others, justice. Ten Commandments. No other gods, no idols. Don't take the name of God in vain. Keep the holy day holy. And then there's six more that are not directed to God but directed to those around us. Honor your parents. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Anybody know the last one? Don't covet so jesus will keep the commandments which ones and jesus he assumes he's granting that the young man certainly uh has no other gods no idols doesn't take the name of the lord in vain keeps the sabbath so he just touches on the other six he says well honor your parents honor your parents uh don't kill Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And don't... Well, the last one's covet. But it's interesting. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, all three of them, Jesus says something a little different when it gets to that 10th commandment. Don't covet. Which we think of as don't, don't desire what is another's. Don't set forth strategies to make what belongs to others yours. In Mark, Jesus says, instead of saying don't covet, he says don't defraud. Don't defraud. The Defraud, defraud is, a, is a stronger word than covet. It seems that Jesus is saying once you give yourself over to covetousness, you are going to be in some way participating in unjust practices towards those around you economically. In Matthew, it's really interesting. What, what instead, of, instead of do not covet, he names the other five, but instead of do not covet, it becomes love your neighbor as yourself. He borrows another commandment. In other words, if you are coveting, that is, if you are seeing what others have and saying, I want that, then it becomes impossible for you to love your neighbor as yourself because you're in competition with your neighbor. I don't want my neighbor blessed and provided. I want what he has. So Jesus, instead of saying, don't covet, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus at first leaves it out. He doesn't even mention the 10th commandment. So this, in Luke's gospel, uh, what do, what do I got to do? He said, "Keep the commandments. Which ones? Don't I mean honor your parents, and don't kill, and don't commit adultery, and don't steal, don't bear false witness." And he didn't mention the six. He didn't mention the, the final one, the tenth one. And the young man says, "Well, I've, yeah, I've done all that. Look, I don't. I honor my parents, and I don't. I don't." Uh, I don't kill and I don't commit adultery and I don't steal and I don't bear false witness. And Jesus, well, there's, there's one thing you lack. Let's look at that story. Let's look at that. Luke 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments you shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. You shall not murder. That's the sixth commandment. You shall not steal. That's the eighth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. That's the ninth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. That's the fifth commandment. He replied, I've kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, there is still one thing lacking. Well, the the commandment that Jesus hasn't mentioned is the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. But, But look what Jesus says. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Wow. Um, In Mark, it's don't defraud. In Matthew, it's love your neighbor as yourself. But in Luke, it's sell all that you have and give money to the poor and then come follow me. What Jesus says to the rich young ruler probably makes us nervous. Anybody nervous? I'm nervous. Makes me nervous. I understand that. And there are all kinds of ways for us to soften it, and it's probably necessary. Nevertheless, we must allow Jesus to challenge our assumptions about economics. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, Jesus doesn't say what he says to this man that he says to every. He doesn't say that, apparently, to Lazarus and Martha and Mary. He doesn't even say that to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give away half. He says, this man, give away all. And it makes us nervous. Now, I I think maybe, you know, maybe Jesus is actually inviting him to become a disciple. Remember when Jesus calls Peter and James and John and Andrew, his first four disciples that we heard in the gospel, reading for this week? What did they do? They left their what? What did they leave? They left their... But that means they left their business. You know, just just to, I mean, we know how it works out, but they don't know. They're going to leave their business and follow this itinerant, just started up preaching yesterday, guy from Nazareth. That's risky. And I think Jesus is inviting this one to join their band, but it comes at a steep price. You're going to have to... Sell all that you have, give the money to the poor, come follow me, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. I know it makes us nervous. We've got to find ways to soften it. I get it. Nevertheless, we must allow Jesus to challenge our assumptions about economics. In other words, money cannot be a no-fly zone for Jesus in your life. We cannot say, Jesus, you can talk to me about anything you want except money. Most of us, me included, tend to think that, you know, my money is my money, and so just back off. Uh, I understand that, but just don't assume that Jesus even relates to that. The foundation for all that the Bible has to say about money, Moses, the prophets, Jesus, the apostles, is this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now we think, we're very proprietary, we think my money is my money, it's my money, it's my money. And God says, no, it's all mine, it's all mine. Everything you have is mine. And I'm very interested in what you do with what is mine. Let's finish the story. Verse 23. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. There it is. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Then Peter said, look, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So this is kind of a sad story. The man doesn't, he doesn't go. I mean, there's a, there's a tradition in the church that this, that this rich young ruler was John Mark, who finally does become a disciple, but we don't know that. All right, let me just begin to bring this in for a landing, because I see everybody just is about as uncomfortable as we ever want anybody to be on a Sunday morning. <laughs> let me say it this way. Jesus does not teach Marxism. Jesus is not a Marxist, and like a love it, he's like, oh, God, I know that. He's not a Marxist. He's, he's not a follower of Karl Marx. And Jesus does not teach capitalist economy, economics either. He is not a follower of Adam Smith. Now, now you're back to being nervous again. You said, "Well, if he's not if he's not a Marxist, not a socialist, but he's not a capitalist." No, I know for good and well he's not a capitalist. Then what is he? What what kind of a, what's the economic Jesus teaches love economics? Jesus says the most important thing you can do with your money is to love God and love your neighbor. To love God. And that and that comes first, by the way. You love God and then you love your neighbor. You say, Ah, I don't need to love God with my money, I'll just love my neighbor. That won't last long. I mean, the scripture sets forth the great commandment, the first commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus teaches love economics. Saint Augustine gave us this famous axiom. Love and do what you will. But there really is just this one great commandment. Love. Love God. Love your neighbor. Twofold but they're, they're, they cannot be separated. Love God. Love neighbor. And if you, and if you do that then you, then do what you want. But you can't play games. You have to say, no, I really am loving God supremely. I'm loving my neighbor as myself. And that will deeply affect what you do with your money. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. We've been scripted to think that life is a competition of acquisition. A game to see who can get the most. But that is a lie. Life is not a game. Life is a gift. The purpose of life is not to win The purpose of life is to learn to love well. So how do we respond to what Jesus says about money? With trust and generosity. We're going to trust God. We're going to seek first his kingdom. We're going to trust God. Jesus says, you know, don't be anxious. Don't worry about all the money stuff. Consider the lilies. Consider the birds. Trust God. He'll take care of you. Seek first his kingdom. Everything will be added. Trust God. And then be generous to those around you. So in a moment, we'll come to the Lord's table and find grace in the form of bread and wine, the gifts of Christ to us. We'll come and we'll receive that invitation into the life of the kingdom. But then it might be good to stop by those boxes back there. Let's say Isaiah 58, or Project 58. you know about that? Project 58, the box there. Box. There, by the exits, Isaiah fifty-eight says, "The Lord says, this is the fast that I choose. This is the fast that I want you. This is that I want you to fast to loose the bands of injustice and to share your food with the poor.' And so, what we do is we have a place where you can give a little extra. We have tithes and armor, but there's a little extra there as you leave. A little extra, just a little extra." Just give. Think think of that's that's where Lazarus is begging for the crumbs from our table. We put some of the crumbs from our table in that box, and then then we tell you what we do. See your bulletin this week? There at the top, on the back page. Project fifty-eight. Your Project 58 donations helped a man in our community who is fighting cancer. And due to hospitalizations and treatments, he fell behind on his bills. We assisted with paying a utility bill. That's a miracle for that man. That's just a flat-out miracle, right? And so Jesus says, that's what you do with your money. You do stuff like that. So I'm going to come to the table of the Lord with you all. But before I get out of here, I'm going to go buy the box and uh, love my neighbor as myself. Amen? Stand with me. The most important thing we can do with our money is to love God and love our neighbor.